Hello, my name's Hazel Russo. I'm a coach with the Professional Support Unit for London and the South East, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our podcast today. So this podcast is all about mediation. We're going to be exploring mediation, what it is, when to use it, what to think about, and also some tips for ways that trainers could use mediation skills in the workplace. I'm delighted to introduce my guest today, Chula Rupasinger. Chula is an experienced commercial and workplace mediator with increasing experience working within the health service. Welcome, Chula. Thank you very much. Real pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. So we're going to have a chat. And first question, really, what is the mediation process? Can I be greedy and maybe uh, I'll, I'll certainly answer that. But let me just say what I think mediation is, because I think it will make the process sound a bit more logical. So I, I'd say mediation is a facilitated conversation, facilitated by an independent neutral. And you know, at its minimum, then it's about ensuring fair play. If I was to say a bit more, then it would be that a mediator can sometimes help people think more clearly or think differently about what's happened. So what's happened, what it meant, what was said, what was intended. So often these things in people's mind just get conflated and there's one truth. And really, I would say, well, as soon as you speak to two people, there are multiple truths. And the process then can be as simple as putting people in a room with that mediator, the independent neutral, to help them explore what's happened, what they felt about it, what they want to do about it. More usually in the workplace, I would say, let's imagine there are two people. I'd speak to one person first in private, and then I'd go and speak to the second person again in private, and then bring them together to have a fuller discussion. That's the process. What's the advantage of those individual conversations? So sometimes people, at the worst, I suppose they feel unsafe. And I suppose there's a spectrum of what unsafe means. But, you know, psychologically unsafe, people don't really want to make themselves vulnerable, probably ever. But they certainly don't want to make themselves vulnerable and think broadly and expansively about something in front of the person who they perceive to be the problem. So speaking to somebody in private allows them the liberty to think more broadly, because I think with the other person there, they're more likely to just respond in the way that they've been responding for the last two weeks, two months, two years. Mm. And I can hear the importance then of that neutrality. You said that the mediator is sort of the neutral space. Yes, that really is very important. And I suppose it's why I said right at the beginning or made reference to the independent neutral. So it is vital to be neutral. The problems really can be with a someone that's known to both parties is that it's difficult for the parties to really believe that person is independent. So that belief and that trust that it's confidential and that the mediator doesn't have any skin in the game is one of the things that makes it work. Mm, I, I can really understand that. And I think that sense of safety that you've talked about is really essential, I would yeah. imagine, to enable yeah. people to be able to see things differently. Yes, it's a great help. 
of course, I would say any friend, manager, colleague can always help two people with whatever they're currently struggling with, let's say their dispute. But if that doesn't work, the, the mediator isn't necessarily a better dispute manager per se, but their very independence does change the flavour in a huge way. Mm. Would there be any situations where mediation might not work or not be appropriate? I would say this, wouldn't I? But I, I don't think I really want to accept too readily the idea that there are some circumstances where it won't work. I suppose some things are really difficult and they might not, but I certainly think mediation should always be actively considered. And what drives me to that conviction is that I have listened to people who have on one side been terrorist bombers who have killed people and on the other side of the table have been the parents of the people that the terrorists have have killed. And they were doing a tour together. And that shows me that even in the toughest of circumstances, dialogue is possible. And in fact, this was more than dialogue. This became a working together of people that really couldn't have been further apart and where the what was at stake and what had been lost uh, was off the scale. So I think mediation should always be considered. And it's, it's hard to think of a circumstance where I would say not worth trying. I mean, that sounds like an extreme sort of situation. What kind of principles that enabled that to work could enable mediation to work, perhaps in less extreme circumstances? Let me just say then two things that come to my mind, perspectives and interests. So perspective that people have when they're in dispute is very clear, focused and narrow. It's their truth. And I would never wish to argue with it. But there is a broader truth. And let me just give you the perspective of time. Now, one of the things that one might say to a party is, and how will you feel about this in five months time, in five years time? And for sure, it won't be with the intensity that they feel it now. That, of course, opens up the possibility that there are other things in that, that person's life, which have all been crowded out with their focus on this dispute. And so what they're not noticing is how their career, their health, their family relationships might all be suffering with their over-concentration or their singular concentration on the presenting issue. So one of the things a mediator will do is help parties to see whatever it is they're talking about in broader or different perspectives. So that's, that's one thing. The second idea that your question triggered for me is the notion of interests. And that's a, uh, forgive me, but that's almost a bit of mediator jargon. And what the word interests means to me is this, that people will have a position, what it is they want, and that's what gets talked about. So somebody might say they want a particular training course. That's their position. And they might be very demanding about it. And it might be very unfair that they've not been sent on it, as they might express it. What a mediator will be interested in is what are the interests that are driving that position? And they could be infinite. But let me just illustrate the point by giving two different interests. One might be a sense of fairness. They might feel it's unfair that everybody else has a course and therefore they should have a course. They may not be very drawn to the intrinsic opportunity of that course. What's actually driving them is the unfairness. 
or they might want the course because it will advance their career in some way. They might want the course because they are genuinely interested in the subject matter of that course and it would be stimulating for them. So the position is always clear and normally explicitly expressed. There's a different conversation that can take place, which is at the interest level, if you like, under the surface. And why that's important is it changes a binary conversation to yes, you can have the course. No, you can't have the course to a much broader conversation with many more possibilities, because, of course, those interests can be satisfied by any number of other interventions. That's really interesting. And as you're talking about that, I'm curious, does that part of the conversation happen when both parties are together or was that something that would be explored in the private conversation or might it be both well i think it might be both right uh, so and it is a matter of style so some mediators will operate with people all together and some will run a shuttle mediation and in the commercial context it's normal to have people in two different rooms and the mediator goes along the corridor between the two different rooms and helps the negotiation take place. I always think in the context of a workplace mediation that where the end goal has people working together in the workplace we ought to be aiming to be having them together in the mediation. My own style is to work with people individually as I've already said because I think that actually allows them to relax enough to start to see the interests because oddly enough people sometimes don't know what their own interests are in the way that I've used the word interest they're so used to saying I want this or this isn't fair or I deserve or they're wrong I'm right that they themselves haven't actually paused long enough to know what's underneath so personally I would prefer to work with people in private first and then bring them together. It might well be that other interests emerge when they're together. And another reason for bringing people together at some point is sometimes the other person is the person that can help satisfy those interests. I really get that. There's some things that you're saying that resonate in terms of coaching, actually. So in coaching, we use the language of values which is what are the motivators that yeah. often people aren't always aware of that until they have that conversation. So I can really hear that. I'm curious about if we think about perhaps outside of a formal mediation where there's an external mediator who's been brought in, yeah. if a trainer or an educator is being asked or is faced with a potential conflict situation between yeah. trainees or with colleagues, how yeah. might they best approach this? Well, my go-to answer is to listen. Really, there is nothing more important. But let me say why I say that. First of all, listening has this wonderful quality, if it's done well, of bringing the emotional temperature down. And as the emotional temperature comes down, rationality goes up. And the second reason why I say listening is so powerful and so important Using that rationality, people can start to problem solve their own issues. And that is pretty much always the key. They need to find their own solution. What the manager or the mediator is doing is creating an environment where they can think more clearly for themselves. So first step, I would say, is to listen. And other than helping 
with the catharsis and the value that that brings, what the listener or manager might do is to listen for interests. And indeed, as you you said, Hazel, listen for the values, because that's where the access to useful problem solving can be found. I might say two don'ts, which are easy to say, but are difficult to do often. One is to try and avoid taking responsibility. Oh, I'll speak to them. I'll do this. I'll do that. There's such a desire in most human beings to help. It's almost reflex action. And the other thing I would counsel against is don't give advice. It's absolutely the default thing for most of us to do most of the time is to listen for a bit, try and find out and then say, well, I think what I would do or I had a situation where and this is what I would counsel against that as best as you can. There is so much in what you're saying that chimes with some of the things that we're looking at in our toolkit here around that powerful listening Mm -hmm. and what the listening creates that space for the other person to think and find their own solutions yes equally not feeling the need to jump in and take responsibility and give advice absolutely and I don't know if you think this is something that's valuable in mediation but something I've often offered to people is something I call the three second rule which is when you think about coming in to say something and give advice just stop and count for three slow seconds because quite often the other person has more to say and I can really hear how something like that could be valuable here as well. Of course I've come across that idea but I don't think I've ever heard it expressed so clearly and in a way that's quite so memorable so I'm going to have to tell you that I'm going to pinch that uh, formula. (laughs) That's a, a lovely idea and apart from the obvious value in it which you've talked about The other thing I suppose I like about that is you're saying to somebody that your restraint only needs to go three seconds. (laughs) You will get a chance to come back in and say whatever you need to say. But look, try this. I think that's a very powerful idea. It must always be good advice. I can't really think in the context we're talking about where it can ever be better to be saying the first thing that comes into your head straight away. Slowing things down is always a good idea. Thank you. Something you mentioned earlier, which I'm curious about, again, in the context of a trainer potentially Mm. looking to resolve something in the workplace, Mm. is this idea of independence. Mm. And I know that you said that that as a mediator, that's really important. Now, if somebody is faced with a situation where they might be needing to deal with a conflict between colleagues of theirs, which might happen, you know, in practice, it might happen. What guidance or advice or tips might you offer in that sort of situation where perhaps independence is less available? I've got two ideas for this. So actually, I used to be a police officer with managerial responsibilities. I became trained as a mediator and I had a a certain rank at that time. And I was asked to mediate between two people. It was a dispute about there was a race element to it and a dispute about promotion. And two things, I suppose, of course, arrogantly, I thought, well, I can be independent and neutral. One, two, that they would never believe that I would be (laughs) because it's a hierarchical organization. And although they were not my subordinates, it was unlikely that they would perceive me as being totally neutral and independent. And so what I did was, for a start, I wore plain clothes, 
Secondly, it might seem a bit extreme, but I took annual leave and I told them I was seeing them on my leave. And of course, three, I made it as clear and as explicit as I could be that I was here as a mediator and not as a senior officer. So I think if you are going to be a mediator or play the role of a mediator and you feel you can disassociate and it's appropriate and proper for you to disassociate from your management role, then you certainly need to remember that your parties will find that hard to fully accept and uh, therefore you need to work at making that as clear as you can do. My other thought on this and actually funnily enough it arose from my very first medical case with two surgeons where the trust asked me to come back. They were very enthused about the process and they were asking a question very similar to yours Hazel and what they said was do you know what we're going to do? We're going to form a relationship with a neighbouring trust And when we have a case, we will ask them to provide a manager to speak to our practitioners and we will do the same for them. So that was their answer. And it's their idea at trust level. But I suppose at a well, I'm sure at a manager level, there'd be nothing to stop me having a conversation with a trusted colleague and saying, look, if I have these sorts of cases or I have this sort of case, I know you're great with people. Would you please spend a morning with them and you have that conversation and I'll be happy to return the favour if if you want at some later stage for any of your people. So that's a really pragmatic way of bringing in some level of independence where that's possible. If you were going to give a starter for 10 for somebody who's not formally trained in mediation, but might find themselves in a situation where they need to address something in the workplace with trainees, You've already said that you would recommend having individual private conversations with, if, mm-hmm. let's say, for the sake of argument, it's two parties. Yeah. Then let's say that somebody brings them together. Mm-hmm. What might be a starter for 10, a number of opening questions or offerings that the person, the trainer might make to kick off a sort of collective process? I think I would want to maybe say two things in response to that. One, it might be to make a statement about what it is we're trying to do here. A realistic but nevertheless upbeat statement, which might simply be, I'm making the assumption that you both would like this situation you both talked to me about to be better, and you're happy to try and work together to try and have an outcome which leads you to be more comfortable. So it might be the statement, the obvious, but it is starting to mutualise the problem and it is getting them to own the assumption that they are going to work together, try to work together anyway, to look for a better future. And a second idea would be to start with, I don't really like the term ground rules for professionals. So a term I might offer would be, can we agree ways that we will work together? And then it is a developed version of the notion that I've already expressed, which is that they are now in engaging in that conversation, starting to work together. And that's progress. They're working on something which is non-contentious and shouldn't be too difficult because people will quickly agree things like one person speaking at a time. Let's agree that if either of us as feeling this to be very uncomfortable that we can have a time out. Those would be two things that occur to me and might typically come up. 
But again, I'm not going to go beyond that because actually to go back to a principle you and I have both talked about, it's their ways of working together. So actually, whatever they say could be something that the mediator manager uh, might encourage them to work on together. And then you can slowly move into the substantive issue. I said I'd find it difficult to keep to two things. So, so here's one other thing I might say to someone who bravely and generously stepped in to try and help these two fictitious people. And that's this. Remember, it's not yours to fix. You're there to help them create an environment in which they can do the thinking. And you don't have to and they don't have to fix everything. There are generally a few things that people are angry or upset about or disappointed about and would like to be different. And so I would say limit your ambition, limit the ambition of the meeting to the low hanging fruit. Don't be abashed about doing that. There are some things are harder to work on and some things are easier to work on. Start with the easy might be a sensible way to go. So that might be more of looking for the common ground if there is common ground. Might it be a follow on, let's say, from ways of working to invite each of the parties to share their perspective? Yes, that's generally a very safe and obvious place to start. The only caution I might add is that if you know somebody is going to talk for a long time or might be very emotive, it might be sensible to have uh, limited either the time or the scope. So if it's a very complex dispute involving all sorts of things which might have happened over years, then it might be sensible to say this meeting is about some subset and or what one might do is say let's agree that your opening statement your opening remarks might be limited to five minutes and if you're going to do that and this is again is a sort of a tip uh, which is i think in the context of your question for an internal manager and i have once done this i've set my timer done that very explicitly what I've said is, let's imagine that you were one of you were there, Hazel, because I always find these things easier to role play. So look, Hazel and Jenny, you can see that I've set my timer. It's going to go off. You're going to hear the beeping go off if you're still talking at five minutes. Let me say how I'm going to deal with this because I don't I don't really like hard rules. But just to be fair, so everyone knows what's happening. If you've gone past the time by a minute, then I will stop you. Is that OK? And everyone is, of course, going to nod and say yes. Uh, so it just gives structure. And of course, it reassures the other person that this is not going to go on for the next hour. And just in the way that you set that up, I can hear, even in the role play, I can hear this feels fair. I know how this is going to work. I feel I have an equal opportunity to speak to the other person and that they will for me. Um, I've got a couple more questions. The first is, which I would think is implicit in what you're saying is that both parties clearly would need to be willing to engage in this process so that any attempt to sort of try and force somebody to say well the other person has said they'll do it why won't you do it I'm presuming that wouldn't work and it wouldn't be a good starting place. The principle that is probably key to mediation certainly as it's practiced in this country is that it's voluntary it's absolutely essential that people turn up of their own free will. Sometimes, and I can't even say it's rare, that parties will feel that they have been pressurised to attend. Now, we get past it, but it's not the best of starts. So whilst no one wakes up in the morning and takes a deep breath in and says, great, lovely day, I know what, let's have a mediation. 
it's still an opportunity and a much much better frame is this that conflict is absolutely normal in the home in the workplace it's happening in the world all the time most of the time we manage it and get past it sometimes the dispute gets embedded and it's quite knotty it's perfectly logical just like in any other field of work when you've got a problem you go to a specialist or you devote particular time to trying to work your way through it so whilst you might not choose to be in this situation you might not choose necessarily to be meeting that person to talk about this difficult matter it is the way through it and so absolutely key that people come along to it with a sense of well not being compelled and a sense of hope that this is a chance to make their tomorrow better yes thank you my other question if one of the parties let's say one of the people involved has made some allegations that they say they're being bullied Mm -hmm. they're feeling that they're being harassed in the workplace by the other person yes is that something that can still be addressed through mediation or might that have to go down another route initially i would say absolutely it's everyday stuff for mediation so i'll come more squarely back to the question and sort of introduce a caveat and say that organisations generally have grievance procedures and mediation might fit into that grievance procedure in some place. So one needs to be aware of whatever internal rules and policies and structures that might already be in existence. Mediation would be something to try sooner rather than later. And yes, bullying or bullying with a discriminatory element is absolutely the sort of thing that mediators are dealing with every day. It does prompt me to say that one of the things that a mediator will do is ensure that the environment is as safe as possible. So if we go back to the ways of working that we've talked about before, then it's not really normally necessary to say this in a professional context, but one might say something about appropriate language. One almost certainly will say something about a timeout. Your three second rule, which I'm going to now adopt, is something perhaps to reinforce. I can hear myself saying that now is you might hear something. In fact, I might hear something that makes me go, oh, ouch, a bit strong. Or is that appropriate? Isn't it appropriate? So if we all adopt the three second rule, we can pause and we can ask for time to think about that. And this is the sort of thing that stops the meeting being reactive. And that's people's fear about going into a mediation that they'll lose control. They might be scared the other one will lose control. They might be scared they will lose control. And so if this slightly more measured pace can be the standard way of operating in the mediation, it makes even the most difficult of subjects possible to talk about. Thank you. In that or any other mediation type of situation, what might represent a good outcome? What would let you know that, okay, this has gone well, something's moved forward here okay i'm smiling broadly because i must tell you my very first mediation it was a commercial one i must admit but they would not at any stage in the day be in the same room they were spitting venom at each other and remember this was business it was two couples and i have never forgotten the day on the steps of the court literally because we'd been thrown out we'd run out of time they came to an agreement. The two couples ended up chatting and smiling and got into the same taxi together as they left. 
So that was a clear case of happily ever after into the sunset. Now, that rarely happens, but it does sometimes happen uh, that the relief can be immense. And it's clear that a misunderstanding or misunderstandings have been either sorted out or a completely new perspective has been given to them. And it suddenly seems less important. More modestly, what can happen is that people can agree to work together in a certain way or limit their interaction. So I had a case of harassment, uh, alleged harassment, and what was satisfactory to both was that they simply agreed that their interactions, because they recognised they had to work together, would take place, would continue, but they would be limited to work-related matters only. So that was a safe structure that they were both happy with. Or there might be, as I've already alluded in when you asked me about tips for managers, it might be that there's just progress that they have agreed on A, B, P, Q and R, but not the other thing. So it might be that there's partial agreement. And I might just bridge from this to say another thing that can happen, which is progress again, is to say when something comes up again, that they will do this. In other words, the mediator might say, so you seem to have reached either complete or partial agreement. Now, if there's another bump in the road, what will be a good way that you'll both be happy with to attend to it in future. And so that might be, well, we'll text each other or we'll say, can we meet for coffee? Or I will speak to my manager and you will speak to your manager and they'll speak to each other. Whatever, There's no right answer. But the point is, there is now a structure that they have both invented and agreed upon to help them through their next difficulty. So these would be a number of different signs that we might see that there's been progress. Lovely. Really clear. Chula, I'd like to ask you about how you might approach a situation where, let's say, there's some conflict or a dispute in the workplace and a trainee is from a different cultural background to the other party and potentially even the trainer. And there's a lack of awareness about the part that that cultural difference might be playing in the dispute on the part both of the other person and the trainer. What might you offer around that? That's an interesting question, and it's one that's come up in my experience. It's not uncommon for somebody to say that this party or this group of people are from this part of the world, and they think like this, and the invitation to me implicitly is, and that's part of the problem. As I say, this is not an uncommon feature. What I notice about it is that somebody is making the judgment or assumption that culture is playing a particular role in this dispute. All that does for me as a mediator, I mean, I'll, I will, of course, listen to that. And if that person is one of the parties, then I will ask them to think about it, to talk to me about it, to expand upon it. And they and I will make a judgment as to whether to start to share that with the other party or share some part of it. What I don't think is the case is that there is some rule which says because culture is involved in it, that there is some different process to be applied. Frankly, culture is always in it. It's just that when the question comes up, say on a mediation training course, we're normally talking about cultures from different parts of the world. But frankly, there are organisational cultures or there are cultures of sexual orientation or gender culture in a sense is 
always part of the framework that's in this discussion. And frankly, the same principles apply, which is take your time, allow people to think and be expressed about it and to think what is the impact of maybe their assumptions or their values on the workplace interaction. Mm. In those situations, might it be useful for the trainer to have in mind that they also may not be fully aware of the impact of cultural differences, although they're holding as far as possible that neutral space, but the kind of recognition that we all have unconscious bias It may be that the trainer naturally feels more comfortable with particular trainees, let's say, and to have an awareness of that. Yes. And we would quickly agree, wouldn't we, that this is what we would want from us all and all managers in all circumstances. It's just that when you take the special responsibility of almost having the temerity or as the word I used earlier, the generosity of stepping in to be that neutral chair, you're taking on a special responsibility. So yes, I think one needs to be very alert to the biases and assumptions that are put this first person that I as a mediator might be bringing to this. And then there's another piece of work to be done, which is to think, are the parties also seeing what's happening, what's been said or being proposed through a certain filter? And of course, it's not for me as a mediator to say right or wrong, good or bad. It might be for me as a mediator, one, to notice it and two, to call attention to it. I wouldn't put it more strongly than that. Actually, what I think is as big a risk, frankly, is for somebody to make an assumption that the behaviour is culturally driven. We just don't know. And I think a humility about our own biases and a humility about our own knowledge is very wise for the person who is acting in the role of mediator for the reasons we've talked about, but also because it's starting to model that caution and humility for the parties, which can only be helpful. Tudor, I think you gave, I mean, I think that was really, really useful. The context for this whole toolkit is around differential attainment and there are a number of ways that that can show up but certainly where a trainee might be um, that trainers might be more comfortable to have early conversations with trainees that they feel comfortable with rather than trainees they feel less familiar with so they don't have the early conversations and then things escalate to a point where it requires something like mediation or, or something else so it's about in this series so including in this podcast is just prompting the awareness of trainers to have in mind this may be relevant here in the context of differential attainment well one of the things to think about is that people can sometimes feel embarrassed that they need help in managing a relationship with a colleague so a useful thing to do is to point out that disputes are a fact of life. They're an everyday feature of working life. And sometimes people, yeah, they do get stuck. So it just makes sense to accept a little bit of help to think things through. Yeah, I suppose that tip then really is just normalise what's happening and what you're offering. Mm, Thank you. I think that's really useful. I think we're going to draw to a close shortly, but is there anything else that you think would be really useful for trainers and supervisors to be aware of or think about when dealing with conflict in the workplace? 
I might say take full use of the confidentiality provisions that surround mediation. So there are two levels of confidentiality that apply to mediation. One is that whatever is agreed is private unless the parties say that they want it to be public or some part of it to be public. Another part is that when the party is having a private conversation in their own room, whether that's their own Zoom breakout room or their own physical room with the mediator, that that's a private conversation. So I would say actually to the participants, take full advantage of that. This is a unique opportunity to try and fix the problem that you're having and speaking openly, truthfully and imaginatively about what's happened to the mediator is how it works. So although I frame that as advice for the participant, and I know your question was about what's the tip for the manager, I find the mirror, I suppose, for that is for the manager to really encourage, not just by pleading, but by bringing it to life, encourage the people to take full advantage of this mediation opportunity and particularly its confidentiality or privacy rules. Wonderful. Thank you, Chula. I've learnt a lot myself here today and I think this is going to be really, really valuable for anybody listening to this to find out more about mediation and how it can be used in the workplace. Thank you so much for taking part. It's an absolute pleasure. It's my favourite subject and I just love the fact that the simple power of listening and language can bring resolution to conflict, which I know can be really painful in the workplace because work is important to people. And so if any of this is useful to people at work, then I'm very happy. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.